Father, we come to you hungry and thirsty for your kindness. Lord, please open our minds, open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, that we would see, that we would taste, that we would behold, that we would know your goodness in your word. And Father, as a result, we ask that you would do a miracle in our hearts, that you would turn us away from seeking ourselves and instead cause us to seek you, to long for you, to love you, to crave your word and to want more. Father, do this, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, while most weeks this sometime comes up, but this week when I was praying, I just wanted to impress upon you how grateful I am to serve so loving a congregation. I love how kind you are with me and how patient you are, uh, and it's just been a wonderful blessing for my whole family to be a part of you now for, what is it now, a year and a half, something like that? Time's going by. (laughs) We're, We're working through... First Peter here as a church family. We come now to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. What makes for a healthy church? What is it that causes a church to stick together? To remain lovingly united? despite pressure from the outside or differences inside. Just think about that for a moment. So here we are at Grace. We're studying Peter's letter to believers that are facing a rising tide of hostility as a result of their faith. Now Peter begins his letter by reminding them in verses 1 through 12 of God's many mercies. Then starting in verse 13, he gives four implications of those many mercies in the life of a believer. He says that we are to be a hopeful people in verse 13. We're to be a holy people in verse 15. We're to be a people who fear God in verse 17. And as we saw last week, we're to be a people who love others, verse 22. So last week, Pastor John helped us better understand how and as a result of God's new work of new birth in our hearts, that we have the opportunity and also the obligation to love one another sincerely and sacrificially. And we saw that our love for others comes from our love from Christ. Such a sincere brotherly love, Pastor John argued, and I agree entirely, is arguably the most important and most essential mark of a Christian's character. And as a consequence, it is the defining mark of spiritual maturity. Indeed, I would argue the health of a church and its capacity to endure difficulty its capacity to remain united despite differences of conviction depends largely on the spiritual maturity of its members. I think a church will fracture if and when our love turns more inward 
than outward. When we become more concerned with ourselves than with others. When what makes us different becomes more important than what brings us together. And in that sense, what we love is what defines us as a people, and what we love is what unites us as a people. You could say that love is essential to Christian unity. And you would say that what we love is essential to Christian identity. You need love for Christian unity. What you love defines who you are. In a Christian community, it is our love for God, which is revealed and defined by his word, and our love for others that flows out of that, that defines, unites, and sustains the church, even in the face of hostility and persecution. So the question that comes as a result of this is, if what causes a church to stick together, if what's a mark of a healthy church is significantly the spiritual maturity of its members, then what is spiritual maturity? Well, spiritual maturity is not the same as moral perfection. As some of us might assume that it is, I believe one teacher likes to say it this way, it's not your perfection, it's your direction. This is why Peter in this passage describes spiritual maturity in terms of growth. You can see that, and if you've got your Bible, I encourage you, look with me, chapter 2, and you'll see it in verse 2, where he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now here, he doesn't mean that they have not been truly or really saved until they attain some kind of moral perfection. Some of us may have grown up being taught that, and there are branches of the Protestant church that still teach that. That, that there's not a full sense of salvation until you achieve either a second work of grace or a second experience of baptism or a second kind of infilling that brings you to a point. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He doesn't mean that they've not been truly or fully saved until they attain a kind of perfection. He means that God's work of salvation is more fully realized, more fully revealed as we grow up, or as we mature spiritually. Here's an analogy. See, when a person is born, they're no less a person than when they turn 40, right? But you don't see who they are yet. As they grow and as they mature, you see more of who they are. They mature as a person. So that's the same idea here. Our faith in Christ marks the beginning and not the end of our maturity or our completion in Christ. The work has only just begun. We need to grow up into the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this passage, Peter wants to encourage us to grow up into spiritual maturity. He wants us to choose to let go of old ways of thinking and feeling by embracing a new dependence and delight in God and in his word. And so our main idea today for our study, grow in grace. 
taste God's kindness, crave his word, and love his people. Grow in grace. Taste God's kindness, crave his word, and love his people. We're going to take those ideas that I just listed out in reverse order. So, first main idea, which you'll see on your handout if you have one, is growing Christians put away unloving attitudes and behavior. Growing Christians put away unloving attitudes and behavior. So look with me at verse 1. The apostle says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The Greek word translated put away here in the ESV means to set aside. Uh, It's what the people who stoned Stephen did with their coats. Or it's what we see in Hebrews 12 verse 1. Where the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, so every obstacle, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So these are things you take off so that you can do something else. It's a common New Testament picture of what it means to deliberately set aside an old way of life so that we can grow in grace. Now, the first word here, so, which means therefore, connect this verbal idea. Pastor John used the word last week, so I'm going to use it now. Participle. That's what putting away is. It's a verbal idea. It's a participle. The word so, which is therefore, connects that word back up to verse 22 in chapter 1, which was the command we examined last week. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter's trying to show us that sincere brotherly love, what we found in verse 22, means making a decisive break with old patterns of harmful and unloving behavior and thinking. Sincere brotherly love means making a decisive break with old patterns of harmful and unloving behavior and thinking. Someone who has been born again through the power of God's word is someone who chooses every day to put away all malice, to put away deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. To grow spiritually then means that we must not wait for sin to simply wither up on its own. If you leave the weeds in your garden and you don't do anything about them, they don't just die. They multiply. And Peter is telling you the exact same thing in the soul of your heart. You can't just assume that because you've been born again that the weeds of sin are going to just choke, starve off, and die on their own. You need to get into the garden soil of your heart and root out those sins. Or in this illustration, you need to go into the wardrobe, the closet of your old attitudes and behaviors and start pulling clothes off the rack that don't have any place belonging there anymore. When Benedictine monks would join a monastery, they would have their freedmen's clothes, their their clothes that they wore before they became a monk, and they would keep those clothes on the premises. And the point was that every single day the monk had to choose. I could go back to my old way of life, 
And I could just go and get my old clothes. And I could leave. And I could go back to the way I was before. Or I could choose today to embrace my calling. A Christian every day rises up and chooses, I'm going to follow Christ as best as I may. And the way that we do this is we need to, or one of the things that we, that we need to do is to reject unloving attitudes and behaviors. The first of which is malice. He says, remove all malice. And malice is first a sin of the heart. It's defined as a feeling of hostility or strong dislike against someone else. It means to harbor anger and bitterness deep in your soul. It means to wish harm on someone else. Consequently, malice is closely related to and even breeds deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. So that's the next cluster. And you'll notice that each of these clusters are broken up by the word all. So all malice. There's no exception. There's not some kind of malice that is acceptable for a Christian. Christians can hold on to these kinds of malice. Or it's okay sometimes for a Christian to be deceitful. Or it is acceptable for a Christian periodically to slander someone. All malice, all deceit. So deceit and hypocrisy and envy, the word for deceit... Dolos comes from the root meaning to bait a hook. It's what a fisherman does. He deceives the fish. He puts bait and hides the hook in the bait. So when you bite that, you suddenly discover that what you thought was dinner has made you dinner. And that's what deceit is. It's to use treachery and cunning to harm someone else by distorting reality, right? It's what the chief priests did to Jesus. In Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, the chief priests and elders, quote, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, deceit, dolos, and kill him. This is the opposite of what Jesus did. Just later in this chapter, chapter 2, verse 22, Peter will say, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was Dolos, deceit, found in his mouth. That means that nothing that Jesus taught had the appearance of something sweet, but which really was there to trick you. And one of the ways Christians can love one another is by imitating Christ. And so we imitate Christ by putting away, putting off all deceit. You can see that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, where Paul says, Therefore, having put away, same verb, falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Do you see there how the health of a community depends upon the spiritual maturity of its members? Consequently, deceit goes hand in hand with hypocrisy then, doesn't it? Remember last week, Pastor John did a great job explaining hypocrisy. I'll just revisit it briefly. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be what they know they're not. Now, sometimes we say that a hypocrite is a person who says one thing and does another. That's not at least the biblical definition of hypocrisy. Falling short of our own ideals is not hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy is pretending that we have reached our ideals when deep down we know we haven't. Hypocrisy, then, is one of the worst kinds of deceit. Hypocrisy erodes our character. Is you're lying to yourself and you're lying to other people. You're telling yourself that you are something that you're not, and you're trying to convince others of the same idea. It erodes both our character and it erodes others' trust. Friends, you cannot grow spiritually as long as you care more about what other people think is true than what God knows to be true. You cannot grow spiritually as long as you care more about what other people think to be true than what God knows to be true about you. And you can see then how hypocrisy is actually the root of envy. Because when you're overly concerned with what others think, that in turn produces envy. Now, we typically covet things, but we envy people. Envy hates someone because of who they are, or because of what they have, or what they enjoy. And we see here that this is what drove the religious leaders to use deceit because they were hypocrites to get rid of Jesus. It's what drove them to hand him over to Pilate. Matthew says so in chapter 27, verse 18. He says, for he, that's Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. The Greeks had a saying, as rust corrupts iron, so envy corrupts a man. Envy is smallness of heart. Envy means instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, when you see that someone else is experiencing something that you desperately wanted, you really wanted to experience that, and God gave them that experience, instead of rejoicing with them and saying, praise God, thank God that you get to experience this wonderful blessing, instead you grow bitter against them and God. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and blessing God's kindness towards others, it begrudges God his providence and it hates those he blesses. And the last one is slander. Slander in English has a technical term. In, In English, slander means to say something that's not true about someone else in a public forum. Well, that's a bit narrower than the Greek definition. The Greek word literally just means to speak against. It means to scorn someone. It could be mocking someone, insulting someone. It means to tear someone down. It's what Job, it's what the Greek translators rendered Job 19.3 with. Job says of his friends, these 10 times you have cast reproach, literally slander on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Now, sometimes we use slander to express the malice, bitterness, envy, and hypocrisy that's growing in our heart. When you feel enmity towards someone, when you are envious of them, you might not take actual action, but you might say something to them or about them to tear them down in your own mind, in the mind of others, to somehow erode that aspect of them that causes you pain. 
Instead, spiritual maturity reveals itself in loving and honest speech. So the opposite of slander is what we see in Ephesians 4.29, where Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Remember how the Greeks said that envy is, is like Uh, as rust corrupts iron. Well, envy corrupts the soul. Well, these things corrupt the unity of the church. They weaken it and weaken it and make it brittle. That's why we must not let corrupting talk come out of our mouths. That's why we have to build each other up. We have to be constantly maintaining the health and the spiritual well-being of our body. Friends, the reason that Peter is spending time on these particular concerns, I think is because Peter's concern is that sinful and unloving attitudes and behavior, if they are left unconfronted or unrepented, will erode the church's unity. He's looking at a church that's going to be facing a rising tide of hostility, difficulty, even persecution. And he knows that when that heat gets turned on, all the corruption will bubble to the surface unless we take care of it. Friends, if we are not actively growing as Christians, or even worse, if we're simply playing at being Christian, then when our culture and when cultural hostility heats up, it will not just expose the cracks in our own individual armor, it will divide the church. Friends, even unbelievers can maintain the appearance of kindness. Jesus described the tax collectors and Gentiles this way. He said, they love their friends. We can maintain the appearance of civility very easily. We can, we can, as Christians, maintain the appearance of kindness so long as we are comfortable, so long as our preferences and our convictions are not challenged. But spiritual maturity is truly tested and it is revealed when the going gets rough, when we are not just uncomfortable, but when our convictions actually begin to collide. Difficulty then has a way of revealing our true values. Difficulty tests our love for one another. The question that Peter is getting at here is, when your preferences, when your comfort, when your convictions are challenged, how do you respond to others? And this is where we need to import everything that Pastor John preached last week right here. Do you respond with a sincere sacrificial, strenuous, familial love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And at this point, I want to raise two points of application. And I do this first one with a little bit of hesitation. I hope you understand that it is out of an abundance of love and care and concern for us as a congregation. Friends, we had an opportunity just to just a few years ago, to witness a taste of what it's like when things heat up and how we're going to respond to that. The 2020 election and COVID were profoundly, and in many cases, especially so for me, and I don't know about you, painfully revealing as far as the spiritual maturity of Christ's church. I could go on and tell you lots of stories that grieve my soul from where I last served. And I'm sure that I I went to conferences and I listened to other pastors who were hearing it everywhere. 
And for the moment, right now, what I want us to do is I don't want you to think about what anyone else did, either right or wrong. That's not the point of this application. I don't want you to think about whether the government did the right thing or the wrong thing. I don't want you to think about whether your elders did the right thing or the wrong thing. I don't want you to think about whether your small group did the right thing or the wrong thing. That's not the point of this application. I want you to look at your heart. I want you to ask yourself, did I show gospel love towards my brothers and sisters in light of what we were all facing? Did COVID and 2020 bring to light spiritual maturity? Or did it bring to light malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, slander, things that I need to put away for the good of God's people? Ask yourself, was Christ's example, as it's taught in his gospel, as it's displayed in his cross, was that what ruled my response to those around me and to those over me? I encourage you to consider asking God prayerfully, to help you grow. Because friends, I don't think humbly that 2020 and COVID was just a one and done. It's over. We're not going to face any more cultural hostility ever again. It's not going to get difficult ever again. Good thing we got past that. My brothers and my dear sisters, if we're going to navigate the coming years together as a loving family of believers who aren't going to be fractured by the difficulties and pressures of the world that surrounds us, we need to be growing spiritually in the grace and the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second application, which flows right out of that, so that was looking backwards. Now I want you to just consider your own heart right now. My wife and I did this on our walk this week. Are you still harboring malice toward other Christians? Are you still seething? If so, what steps are you doing? What steps are you taking to repair relationships that you can and to restore gospel-based love? Or, as we look forward to the future, what changes are you hoping to make by God's help so that you and I can offer sincere love towards those that we disagree with? Friends, for love to have space to grow in our hearts, for the love of Christ to survive the harsh climate of hostility that we are finding ourselves increasingly in, we must vigilantly root out every hint of malice. We have to pull out every last strand of deceit. We have to find every root of slander and pull it. So friends, the putting away that, this, that Peter commands us then must be guided by God's word. The way that you and I root out sin, the way that we even find sin in our hearts and lives, we wouldn't know that sin is growing in us until Scripture points and says, see that thing right there? That's sin. The way you and I root out sin, the way that we renew a hurt conscience, the way that we make our seared consciences come back to life by God's grace is by continually submitting ourselves to God's word. God's word is like a scalpel in the hand of the great physician. It's able both to reveal and then to excise, to remove sin's most penetrating tumor that cuts as close to the quick of your soul. But scripture is also like a wholesome meal that restores strength. And that's what the second major point is, is growing Christians 
long for God's word. Growing Christians put off harmful and unloving attitudes and behaviors. The reason they do that is because growing Christians long for God's word. And you can see that in verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Pure spiritual milk here refers to God's word. And most translations render the word that they've given as spiritual. The Greek word is logikon. And the reason I'm naming that, you'll see in a moment. Logikon means literally to be rational. It's where we get our word logic from. Peter chose this word, I think, because of how close it is to another Greek word that you might know. Logos, which means word. Peter is connecting the way that God planted new life in your heart to how we grow spiritually, which we saw back in chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding logos, word, of God. And that's why if some of you are reading the NASB, I, I like their translation. They deliberately render verse 2 as like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, Peter illustrates then how our new faith should grow and mature. And he does it by comparing a believer's thirst for the word to a baby's thirst for milk. So look closely at verse 2. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now this can be confusing, because elsewhere in Scripture, Paul especially criticizes immature believers saying that they're only fit for milk. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul says to them, to that church, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And Hebrews also has a similar passage criticizing immature believers. The difference between these two passages lies in the difference between being childish as opposed to being childlike. Scripture commands us to avoid childish and immature thinking and behavior. Scripture commands us to imitate certain childlike qualities. You'll remember some of them. We're to have faith like a child. We are to be humble like a child. Here, we are to have the appetite of an infant. Peter is urging believers to long for God's word in the exact way that a baby longs for its mother's milk. And friends, what we can tell from this passage is that no one is so mature that they no longer need to be renewed and instructed by the word of God. In this picture, as opposed to Paul's. So in Paul's picture, he says, you know, you're like infants and I need you to grow up. Peter here is saying, no, I want you, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, mothers, fathers, grandfathers, and grandmothers, all the way down to the smallest Christian infants, all of you long, like an infant does, for the pure milk of the word. None of us graduate from the school of Scripture. Now, what specifically, what kind of milk? Well, again, in verse 2, he says, pure spiritual milk. 
Pure spiritual milk is simply the word of God, but it is not simple teaching. Peter doesn't just want us to be hungry. He wants us to be discerning, to long like an infant for pure milk, uncontaminated milk, undiluted milk. And friends, when children are born, they don't want an Xbox. They don't want an iPhone. They don't want an allowance. They don't want a trip to Disney World. They want milk. And they will wake the house if they don't get it. As I know. (laughs) So friends, what would contaminated milk be? Well, contaminated milk is teaching that perverts or distorts the essentials of the gospel. It is poisonous milk. It's milk that if a Christian feeds on, they'll die. Think of things like the prosperity gospel. Think of a false Christology like Mormonism, claiming that Christ is a creature. Or like Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that Christ has divinity. These are contaminated forms of teaching. They they might taste a little good at the edge because they've got a lot of moral content to them, but the root of them is poison and it will kill a Christian. Diluted milk is teaching that's been watered down. It's watered down instruction that can't really do any spiritual damage, but it also doesn't do you any good. You can think of lots and lots of sermons, 10 steps for a healthier marriage. I mean, I'm sure... Maybe it's helpful, but, but if it's not rooted in the pure milk of the word, it will do you no spiritual lasting good. That growing Christians crave pure milk is not to say that growing Christians read nothing but scripture or that growing Christians avoid any and all topical preaching or that growing Christians listen only and assiduously to the metrical Psalms. No. No. But because careful instruction in God's word is essential for a growing Christian, growing Christians crave the pure milk of God's word. We'll put up with smoke and lights and sound if we get good feeding at the end. But no number of smoke machines is going to cover over the fact that if you don't give a real Christian the pure milk of the word, they're going to leave unsatisfied. So there's two ways that our longing should be characterized. One is our longing should be intense. Our longing for God's word should go beyond the 90 minutes of a Sunday morning. We should long for it not as something that tickles our fancy. Well, this is an interesting thing. Isn't it interesting how this old book handles things? We should think of it as a way of life. Psalm 119, I won't read the whole thing, 14 through 16 Psalmist says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Friends, a football player during timeout is not curious about getting water. He doesn't think or find Gatorade interesting. He finds it essential. He wants it right then. He wants it right now. So our longing should be intense. Secondly, our longing should be intentional. Peter says, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. He doesn't want to cultivate a whole bunch of Christians who just want to be nerds about Scripture. 
He doesn't want to just develop people who have a lot of biblical information in their head, but no spiritual growth in their soul. D. Edmund Hebert writes, the true aim of Bible study is never a mere mastery of its contents, but it's a transforming experience with the Lord who reveals himself in his word. We are not aiming to become mere professors. We are professors of God's word. We do want to grow in our knowledge. We want to understand and study the word of God carefully, but we don't want to be mere professors. We want to be full-blooded disciples. Spiritual strength and endurance is our goal, not bodybuilding. So how could we cultivate such a deep desire? This is a foreign desire to us as sinners. No sinner comes into this world saying, I want to hear more of that book. So how do you cultivate such a deep desire? Where does such a craving come from? Now, friends, while the intensity of our desires will wax and wane across the whole of our Christian life, craving God's word is one of the most basic evidences of new spiritual birth. And that's because our longing for God's word is actually a reflection of our longing for God himself. The most basic reason a growing Christian craves the word of God is because he or she has tasted the incredible goodness of God. You won't want more of God's word until you actually know that God is good. Our longing for God's word comes from tasting the goodness of God. Third point, growing Christians feast on God's kindness. Growing Christians feast on God's kindness. Look at verse 3. It's almost an afterthought, and yet I think it's the central point of the passage. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Friends, it's true. Unless you regularly root out sin, your spiritual growth will be choked. Friends, it's true. Unless God's word is regularly in your spiritual diet, your faith will be weak and sickly and anemic. But what fires our zeal to struggle with sin, what creates our craving for God's word, is not ultimately something we can stir up in ourselves. You can't just make yourself love God more. The primary and the sustaining source of our spiritual life comes from experiencing, from tasting God's kindness. The word translated here as good in verse 3, that the Lord is good, refers not so much to his moral purity, although that's part of God's goodness, as to his kindness, which is what we taste in the covenant of his saving grace. We taste God's kindness in the way he treats us in Jesus Christ. When you experience the loving kindness of God in Jesus, taking away your sin, freely giving you all his righteousness, promising you an eternal and living hope, an imperishable, unfading, and undefiled inheritance that can't be taken away, when you taste the goodness of God, oh, nothing else stands a chance. Consider how Christ compared the yoke of discipleship, the weight or the burden, what it feels like to follow Jesus. Compare how he, consider how he compares the burden of his discipleship, his yoke, 
with what it feels like to try and live up to God's moral requirements using simply your own strength. He says it in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He's not talking about like just a day laborer digging ditches. He means someone who has been working and working and working to try and please God. Someone who's trying, trying to convince God that I'm worth your salvation. He's talking to that person. He says, come to me. I will give you rest. He's talking to the person that feels borne down by the burdens of sin, who no matter how hard they try, sin just seems to get heavier. And no matter how many times they confess, sin just seems to get deeper. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is literally good. My yoke is easy. It's literally the same word, kind. My yoke is kind. My burden is light. And it's the best place I think that the scripture gives us that illustrates what it feels like or what, it, what, it, what this looks like is in Jesus' famous parable of the lost son, sometimes called the prodigal son, where the memory and subsequently the experience, the taste of his father's kindness overcomes his wallowing in sin and despair. You'll remember where he's at after spending his, his stolen fortune on everything that his heart thought it desired. He ends up poor, beggarly, in a pit with pigs. And it's there that he, he remembers something. In Luke chapter 15, verse 17, it said, But when he, that's the son, came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. What's he remembering there? He's remembering his God's, his father's kindness, his father's loving generosity, how even his father's servants don't have any want. He remembers that. And then in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That is the picture of the kindness of God. There is no employer that can match that. There is no earthly parent that can match that. There is no career that can match that, no family, nothing but the kindness of God. So two brief applications and we'll conclude. One, don't despise God's kindness. Friends, we need to beware taking God's kindness for granted so as to continue to linger in sin. That's why Peter began saying, put off these things and renew your longing for God. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The purpose of God's kindness is to wean us off the world and onto his word. 
And if you persist in refusing his kindness, eventually it will pass you by. Turn to him. Repent. Trust and believe in Christ for salvation. The second is feast on God's kindness. So don't despise it. Instead, feast on it. Peter knows that anyone who's truly tasted of God's kindness will simply crave more and more. So he wants us to taste God's kindness so we stop relying on our own strength and we learn to rely on God's grace. Friends, rely on God's kindness for the strength and the zeal to obey, not your own will. Now, certainly there are ways that we can and should stir up our affections for Christ, but you cannot drum up affections without grace. Instead of looking further inward for the power to root out sin and grow into maturity, look to Christ. Recall to your heart and to your mind what Christ has done for you in and through his cross, what Christ affords you in his spirit, what Christ promises you at his return, and let the kindness of God, revealed by the word of God, well up in your soul into obedience. Our main idea today was grow in grace, taste God's kindness crave his word, love his people. Friends, what makes for a spiritually healthy church? Spiritually healthy members. Members who have tasted the kindness of God in Jesus. Members who as a consequence crave the spiritual milk of the word. Members who put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and who as a consequence love one another with a sincere brotherly affection and grow up into salvation. May that be true of you and I. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. And Lord, I pray especially today with the matters that we've brought up that you would prodigiously, providentially, mercifully offer healing to the souls of those who have been so wounded and hurt in the last few years. Father, we pray that you would restore the health and the wholeness of your whole church, but especially Grace Community Church, that we would continue to grow in spiritual maturity, that we would have ever stronger, ever firmer bonds of love and affection, first for you and as a consequence then for one another. Lord, help us to put off harmful and unloving attitudes and help us to long for your word by God doing what we cannot do. Give us a taste of your kindness and renew us in your love. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.